0: Reflections on the Poetry of W. H. Auden, The War Sonnets, or Sonnets from China and Others, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. Auden's second long poem, serious long poem, I say serious long poem, there's an early long poem, A Letter to Lord Byron, in which Auden uh, claimed the license to talk about anything that popped into his Oxford-educated head and then, having claimed that license, went ahead to write a poem in which he uh, used the license uh, to its limit. Uh, it's a charming poem, but I don't think it qualifies as uh, as a serious long poem. So the first serious long poem is the New Year Letter. The second serious long poem is the, is the Christ- Christmas Oratorio for the time being. And in that... Uh, One of the premises behind the second uh, of those poems is that that the Christmas story depicts the initial paradigmatic rejection by the world of redemption because that redemption came to be offered in such a modest and unassuming way, which of course is the thrust of the infancy stories in Matthew and in Luke. Auden. seems to feel that the world is forever repeating the dilemma that was depicted in the Christmas story. And uh, that theme comes up also in a uh, series of poems entitled Kairos and Logos. Uh, it begins with a, uh, a, uh, an examination of the, of the historical and anthropological uh, circumstances that the first Christians had to face. And then, later on, it comes to the question of the historical and anthropological circumstances that contemporary Christians had to face, and it compares and contrasts them in some in some way around them boomed the rhetoric of time, the smells and furniture of the known world, where conscience worshipped an aesthetic order, and what was unsuccessful was condemned uh, uh, Auden gets some of these categories from Kierkegaard, and uh, the aesthetic order is one of those categories. Uh, But to get how he's using it, uh, he inserts the next line. The aesthetic order is one in which what is unsuccessful was condemned. So let me read again. Around them boomed the rhetoric of time, the smells and furniture of the known world, where conscience worshipped an aesthetic order, and what was unsuccessful was condemned while at the center of its vast self-love sat Caesar with his pleasures, dreading death. This is the setting. In clanging verse, that military order, transferring its obsession onto time, besieged the body and cock love, puzzling the boys of an athletic world. These only feared another kind of death to which the time-obsessed are all condemned. He sounds here a little bit like T.S. Eliot in the quartets. Uh, and Transferring this obsession onto time, besieged the body and cock love. The aesthetic order is one which assumes that life is a contest that we must win. That is to say that what is unsuccessful is condemned. And once that is, that assumption is spread out into time, uh, it besieges the body and cock love. That is to say, it says that love is a contest which we must win. Uh, it uh, assumes love is uh, inevitably a triangular a situation in which a contest is underway. In any case, that's the setting in which the first uh, proclamation of the Christian mysteries uh, occurs. So here's the, here's, here's the Christians in that setting. Friendly to what the multitudes call death, Placing their lives below the dogs who love their fallen masters and are not condemned, they came to life within a dying order. Outside the sunshine of its civil world, barbarians waited their appointed time. Yet the world through them had witnessed, when predestined love fell like a daring meteor into time, the condescension of eternal order. So, sown in little clumps around the world, the just, the faithful, and the uncondemned broke out spontaneously all over time, setting against the random facts of death a ground and possibility of order, against defeat the certainty of love. So instead of uh, what is unsuccessful is condemned, uh, an understanding which sets against defeat, the certainty of love. And never like its own condemned the world or hated time, but sang until their death, O thou who lovest, set its love in order. So that was the original <coughs> historical and anthropological circumstances and the ori- original Christian response. I think that's what the poem sang. Later on in the poem, however... He comes to our age and our forgetfulness in which the heirs of those who came to life with dying order have become forlorn to find that its contemporary expression is dying. And so they cry out, wanting that old order to somehow return and reassure them. Where are the kings who routed all confusion, the bearded gods who shepherded the spaces, the merchants who poured gold into our lives. Where are the historic roots, the great occasions? Laurel and language wither into silence. The nymphs and oracles have fled away. So that's the great cry, but the great cry comes echoing back to them in other words. And cold and absence echo on their lives. So here's the echo of that, of that cry. Where are all the kings who routed confusion? The echo sounds like this. We are your conscience of your own confusion that made a stricken widow of the silence and weeping orphans of the unarmed spaces that laid time waste behind you, stole away the birthright of innumerable occasions. In quote, the echo. Reproach, though, is a blessing, proof that silence and condemnation presuppose our lives. We are not lost, but only run away. Now, this is a very complex poem, and I'm going through it very quickly. Uh, But really, it all comes down to that last line. We are not lost, but only run away. And it expresses, I think, the emotional mood of of Auden in the late 30s, in which he himself was going through a, a great transition, took several years to complete, in which he was discovering that after all is said and done, we are not lost, but only run away. In a recent magazine article in the Atlantic Monthly, Glenn Tinder, who's a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, uh, wrote a piece entitled, Can We Be Good Without God? On the Political Meaning of Christianity. His premise is, you might say, the same as the line in the Auden poem, we are not lost, but only run away. And he begins his discussion with uh, a discussion of Christian love. Uh, the assumption being that uh, we have become confused about that and we should become clear again. If you want a poetic expression of the confusion, uh, we go back to those lines in Auden's poem that I just quoted in clanging verse, that military order, transferring its obsession onto time, besieged the body and cock love, puzzling the boys of an athletic world. Somehow love has been, has been ca- caught up in the contagion and mimesis of ordinary social life and made a part of that game rather than of something bigger. Uh, So Tender says we have to get clear about what Christian love is, is. and he begins by saying, first of all, it is foolish. Christian faith is foolish and Christian love is foolish, and he quotes Paul uh, to the effect that what we preach is folly. And he uses the word that's often used, Greek words often used for specifically Christian love, which is agape. As you know, agape has over the centuries uh, attracted a lot of philosophical speculation and Uh, uh, and discussion, uh, how does it differ from Eros and Philia and so on, other forms of love and affection. Uh, And he talks about it, but I think you'd be intrigued by how it comes out for him. Agape, he says, stands out sharply against the background of ordinary social existence. Keep that phrase in mind. Ordinary social existence is something else other than that. The life of every society is a harsh process of mutual appraisal. People are ceaselessly judged and ranked, and they in turn ceaselessly judge and rank others. After having read this article, I thought I would try not to do that. Uh, I think my greatest success lasted about three and a half minutes. <laughs> People are ceaselessly judged and ranked and ranked and they in turn ceaselessly judge and rank others. This is partly a necessity of social and political order. No groups, whatever, clubs, corporations, universities, or nations can survive without allocating responsibilities and powers with a degree of realism. It is partly also a struggle for self-esteem. We judge ourselves for the most part as others judge us. Hence our outer and inner pressures alike impel us to enter the struggle. The process is harsh because all of us are vulnerable. All of us manifest deficiencies of natural endowment, of intelligence, temperament, appearance, and so forth. And all personal lives reveal moral deficiencies as well. The process is harsh also because it is unjust. Few are rated exactly or even approximately as they deserve. There is no judgment so final nor rank so high that one can finally attain security. Many are ranked high, they are regarded as able or wise or courageous, but such appraisals are never unanimous or stable. A few reach summits of power and honor where it seems for a moment that their victory is definitive. It transpires, however, that they are more fully exposed to judgment than anyone else. So you get the lay of the land. Here's the punchline. Agape means refusing to take part in this process. Agape means refusing to take part in this process. Which takes us back to the passage in John's Gospel I quoted last week, the Paraclete Discourse, when Jesus says, It is for your own good that I am going, because unless I go, the Paraclete, the Advocate, uh, the Inspirer, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will show the world how wrong it was about sin, and about who was in the right, and about judgment. Well, Glintender in his article betrays no familiarity with Rene Girard's work, but you'll immediately recognize a parallel between what Glintender calls the harsh process of mutual scrutiny and the social cauldron uh, that. Girard speaks of, in which are brewed the episodes of collective human victimizations that are the most prominent and predictable feature of human history. Girard speaks of this this, uh, social vortex as originating in mimetic desire, the kind of desire that I learn from others. I learn what to desire from the social environment. I learn how to compete for it. Um, so mimetic desire develops into mimetic rivalry, and in then uh, uh, ultimately into mimetic or imitative violence, which can only be solved by finding a scapegoat who can be uh, agreed upon as the culprit. And in the elimination or sacrifice of the scapegoat, culture reforms itself and solves, clears the air of its of its multitudinous hostilities uh, created by the originally by mimetic desire. That's the briefest, I'm sure that's the briefest Girard summary and the the weakest that I've ever accomplished. Uh, Auden is an anthropological poet and I think he is an anthropological Christian. He said in one of his later writings, he said the most difficult problem in personal knowledge, whether of oneself or other, is the problem of guessing when to think as a historian and when to think as an anthropologist. Uh, which indicates that he he knows that one has to look uh, at the situation anthropologically at important times, and his instincts are there from early on. This is a 1932 poem, uh, but already 1932 he recognizes that as the uh, as a culture starts to convene, something very uh, alarming can begin to happen. The first line of this poem, the 1932 poem, is. Oh, what is that sound which so thrills the ear? Down in the valley, drumming, drumming. And we know, of course, from our background, that that's the sound of a culture coming together. And here's how the poem unfolds. Oh, what is that sound which so thrills the ear? Down in the valley, drumming, drumming. Only the scarlet soldiers, dear, the soldiers coming. Oh, what is that light I see flashing so clear over the distance, brightly, brightly? Only the sun on their weapons, dear, as they step lightly. And what are they doing with all that gear? What are they doing this morning, this morning? Only the usual maneuvers, dear, or perhaps a warning. Oh, why have they left the road down there? Why are they suddenly wheeling, wheeling? Perhaps a change of orders, dear. Why are you kneeling? Oh, haven't they stopped for the doctor's care? Haven't they reined their horses, their horses? Why, they're none of them wounded, dear, none of these forces. Oh, is it the parson they want with white hair? Is it the parson? Is it? Is it? No, they are passing his gateway, dear, without a visit. Oh, it must be the farmer who lives so near. It must be the farmer so cunning, so cunning. They have passed the farm already, dear, and now they are running. Oh, where are you going? Stay with me here. Were the vows you swore me deceiving, deceiving? No, I promised to love you, dear, but I must be leaving. Oh, it's broken the lock and splintered the door. Oh, it's the gates where they're turning, turning. And their feet are heavy on the floor and their eyes are burning. End of poem. Well, I offer that as a piece of anthropological data about Auden's sensibilities. It was a sound that was thrilling that ended with this scene. In November 1939, shortly after Auden moved uh, to America, he went to the Yorkville district in New York, which was at that time a German-American district, and went to a film, a Nazi propaganda film. And as the film showed... Uh, uh, polls on screen the people in the theater shouted spontaneously kill them and it was a tremendous moment for Auden thirty years later in an interview Auden reflected back on that moment as a decisive moment and he said I wondered why I reacted against this denial of every humanistic value. The answer brought me back to the church. So, in a way, it was the realization that every humanistic value is, after all, a Christian value that has simply seeped into the secular system. And that's the premise of Glenn Tender's article, in the Atlantic Monthly. If the spiritual foundation for that value uh, uh, dries up, the secular appreciation of it will likewise dry up, which is precisely the, the, the argument that T.S. Eliot made in his essays in the 30s. Uh, so, Tinder's article sounds much like Eliot in the 30s. He says, for instance, quote, The Lord of all time and existence has taken a personal interest in every human being, an interest that is compassionate and unwearying. The Christian universe is peopled exclusively with royalty. Everybody. So we're back back to the question of agape. Tinder says the power of agape extends in two directions. To lift someone else above the process of mutual scrutiny is to stand above that process oneself. Uh, I think, for instance, of of Auden being somewhat pulled out of it when he met Charles Williams. He writes later about his first meeting with Charles Williams, and he says, for the first time in my life, I felt myself in the presence of personal sanctity. Well, to explore how it is we might be rescued from the harsh process of mutual scrutiny, I want to quote... One of Shakespeare's most famous sonnets, Sonnet 29, which is often read as though the love it refers to is romantic love. Uh, But I would like to read it anthropologically, uh, as though the love it refers to is something more like agape. So read it not as as a romantic dilemma, but as an anthropological dilemma. So here's the sonnet. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope. See, you see, is that familiar? with what I most enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, Haply, I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with king. Now, if we think of that love in the last couplet as not romantic love, but the manifestation of unconditional love, which is the little lifeline that pulls us out of this stew of harsh mutual scrutiny, of looking around and envying others, Wishing me to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, etc. And pulled out of it by unconditional love. And as far as I can tell, that's the way uh, others are pulled out. To the extent that I was ever pulled out of it for a moment or two, that's how I got pulled out of it. And I think, it, I think that's probably true for most of them. Timber then goes on to say, if the Christian universe is peopled exclusively with royalty, what does that mean for society as we usually experience it? And here's his answer. Here's what it means. No one is to be casually sacrificed. Now, as I say, he betrays no familiarity with Girard, but he's coming to very much the same assessment of the anthropological situation. He goes on, no natural, social, or even moral differences justify exceptions to this rule. No one should be left outside an alien and a barbarian. This Christian universalism was powerfully expressed by Paul when he wrote that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus as Tinder goes on to speak of Christian universalism, he says it's had had a, a, a puzzling effect on us and on the cultures in which there has been some notable Christian influence in the cultural life. War and national rivalry still seem unavoidable, but they burden the human conscience. Searing poverty prevails in most of the world, as it always has, but no longer is it unthinkingly accepted in either the rich nations or the poor. There is a shadowy but widespread awareness which Christianity has had much to do with creating that one person cannot be indifferent to the destiny of another person anywhere on earth. Now, we must admit that in the practical order that is a sensibility that is recessive, Uh, but it's noticeable. It's noticeably there. The upshot of that is that uh, culture as usual uh, presents a moral discomfort to us. That is to say, people who have been touched with Christian Universalism uh, discover that they are that they are morally uncomfortable with the drift of things, with the assumptions upon which uh, the cultural order is premised. Based as it was on the ultimate exaltation of the universally condemned cultural victim, the gospel proclamation could not be candidly preached without calling into question each and every criteria by which such victimizations were justified. What results from that is a kind of internal universality by virtue of which the socially and psychologically and morally marginal stand under the same world inversion that made the first post-crucifixion proclamation of faith possible. On the other hand, Christianity's external universality, born originally of Gentile conversions in the first century and the ministries of Paul, found at hand the conceptual apparatus of the more philosophical Greek culture. In employing these conceptual tools, it began to make faith proclamations that were so infected with universalist assumption that everywhere the gospel was genuinely heard, there was insinuated into the host culture an antibody hostile to the accepted social reflexes by which cultures had always formed and maintained themselves. It was now with increasing difficulty, and only by going against the grain of their own faith proclamation, that catechized Christians could harbor unqualified contempt for the outcast within the culture and the aliens without. To the extent that the anthropological implications of the gospel faith could not be suppressed, the ordinary cultural reflexes became morally problematic. And Christians and the cultures in which they played a part began to operate with an inner contradiction. In the familiar historical contest presupposing a conclusion involving victors and the vanquished, human nature and the cultural flags, pipes, and drums told Christians that they must strive with all their might to be victors. But the subtle but ultimately irrepressible core datum of their faith was that such victories were hollow and that the vanquished had, by the mere fact of their defeat, an affinity to the historical Jesus that the victors had renounced on the way to their triumph. Charles Williams, there's a passage in Charles Williams' The Descent of the Dove where he's talking about the. The uh, Post-Constantine Triumph of Christianity, and he has this line, speaking of the church. Her victories, among other disadvantages, produced in her children a great tendency to be aware of evil rather than of sin, meaning by evil the wickedness done by others and by sin the wickedness done by oneself. As Tinder acknowledges some inner contradiction in cultures touched by Christi- the Christian sensibility, he notes, quote, nothing in Christian doctrine so offends people today as a stress on sin. Because if we talk of evil, uh, it allows us to play into the standard cultural pattern a little bit better than if we speak of sin. Here's what Tinder says. The principle that a human being is sacred yet morally degraded is hard for common sense to grasp. Look, it's one or the other, isn't it? Either we're all royalty uh, or we're all uh, corrupted. Now, which is it going to be? And he says it's hard to grasp the fact that we're both. It is apparent to most of us that some people are morally degraded. It is ordinarily assumed, however, that other people are morally upright, and that these alone possess dignity. From this point of view, all is simple and logical. The human race is divided roughly between good people who possess infinite worth and, excuse, who possess infinite worth we attribute to individuals, and bad people who do not. The basic problem of life is for the good people. To gain supremacy over and perhaps eradicate the bad people. This common model of life's meaning is drastically irreligious. It is antithetical to Christianity, which maintains that all are sacred and none are good. Glintender says By sin, we cast ourselves into a degraded sphere of existence a sphere the Christians call the world, where human beings look at one another as objects. I'm I'm going to relate this to Auden here in a minute. Attender talks about the Christian concept of sin. He says, according to this concept of sin, the inclination toward evil is primarily an inclination to exalt ourselves rather than allowing ourselves to be exalted by God. Well, then Glenn Tender is analyzing the, the peculiarly modern version of that, which he says is uh, haunted by the ghosts of Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. But I'm particularly struck by uh, the, the clarity of Tender's uh, treatment of Nietzsche. Nietzsche's concept of the Superman was born of his contempt for Christian universalism, which he regarded as a craven attempt to romanticize the wretched of the earth and to censure the true elite. Here's what Tender said. Tender puts words in Nietzsche's mouth. According to Nietzsche, he says, not only does agape lack all moral authority, it inhibits the rise of superior human beings to the heights of glory. By exalting the common person who is entirely lacking in visible distinction and glory, Agape subverts the true order of civilization. Now, Tinder says that's what Nietzsche thought. Girard says Nietzsche was right. That Agape does, in fact, subvert culture. The standard order of cultural life. In other words, Nietzsche was the only one to actually... Recognized what Christianity was doing to culture as usual, which was it was destroying it. And he reacted against that desecration with all his might, considerable might, intellectual genius, and so on. At least Nietzsche knew what would happen if Christianity vanished, and he approved of it. <laughs> that is to say all the prattling about equality and brotherhood and the value of humility would evaporate and he was longing for the day his co- his contemporary descent i mean his modern descendants glentender says lack his genius his courage and his dementia <laughs> <laughs> so that they- they're unwilling uh, to, to express it as forthrightly as Nietzsche expressed it. Here's what Tinder said. Many would like to think that there are no consequences, that we can continue treasuring the life and welfare, the civil rights and political authority of every person without believing in a God who renders such attrib- att- attitudes and conduct compelling. Nietzsche shows that we cannot. Except in the case of infants and children, we ordinarily look on those lacking in purposeful vitality with pity and disgust. Respect we spontaneously reserve for the strong and creative. So the the legacy of Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud, and primarily of Nietzsche, is, quote, most of us have come to assume that we ourselves are the authors of human destiny that it's up to each of us to establish our own validity. If the value and significance of my life is not given prior to and independent of my performance, then everything will come to depend on that performance. The pursuit of secular salvation in the form of social prestige, etc., in the present, and some promise of being well-remembered in the future will consume Now politics, Tender is a political scientist. Politics helps shape the environment in which persons work out their destiny. But it is also very much involved in the process of harsh uh, mutual scrutiny. So Tender says, the political implication of Christianity will always be uh, ambiguous. What comes from Christianity is what he calls an implicit political ambiguity. Every individual is exalted. Every society is placed in question. In trying to conclude on a political position based on Christian agape and so on, what Tender finally comes to is what he calls a hesitant radicalism. He says, Christianity is radical. It is not conservative. It is radical, he said, but it's also hesitant. W.H. Uh, Auden and Lewis Cronenberg edited a book of aphorisms. And uh, one of the aphorisms in that book uh, uh, attributed to an anonymous source is this orthodoxy is reticence end quote orthodoxy is reticence I thought of that when uh, Tinder said uh, what it finally comes down to is radical hesitancy but radical hesitancy is not timidity with respect to the scope of the Christian claim Tinder says Agape is not merely a standard of personal conduct. In exalting individuals, it discloses the inner meaning of history. The inner meaning of history has to do with what is happening inside the person. Inside and outside are not very good metaphors here. Here's what Tenderson. said. Since a destiny is not a matter of empirical observation. A person with a destiny is, so to speak, invisible. But every person has a destiny. Hence, the process of mutual scrutiny is in vain. And even the most objective judgments of other people are fundamentally false. Agape arises from a realization of this. Destiny is an encounter made internal to the person uh, between that person and a demand made on his or her life. And that simply cannot be made visible. It is is an invisible fact about us. So the most important question about us is uh, invisible in the social order. What I'd like to do now is turn the question to this destiny and then turn the thing back over to Auden and his and his poetry. A free person is a person who has said yes to a pressing demand which prior to the consent had seemed antithetical to the person's freedom. The free person is the one who has renounced choice freedom and in that renunciation discovered consent freedom. Now, those are just words, as you know. But it's a way of talking about a, a mystery that gets lost in the sociodrama. Buber speaks of it. Buber says, the free person must sacrifice his puny, unfree will that is controlled by things and instincts, to his grand will, which quits defined for destined existence. He intervenes no more, but at the same time he does not let things merely happen. How often have I quoted this passage? He listens to what is emerging from himself. Not in order to be supported by it, but in order to bring it to reality as it desires. Now, all of that is invisible. Does not, is not available for observation in the social order. Glintender says that we constantly, almost inevitably, get caught up in what he calls the harsh process of mutual scrutiny. And that agape, the kind of love that Christianity is trying to Uh, inspire in us, involves a refusal to participate in that process, and it further involves an attempt to uh, extricate others from that process by manifesting in their presence unconditional love. Tinder then says agape is not merely a standard of personal conduct, but something that discloses the inner meaning of history. The inner meaning of history being the the mystery of personhood that a person has an encounter with a with a with a demand a calling a vocation and in exploring that mystery i i suggested the this this contrast which is merely a verbal one, but I hope it has some Uh, ...suggestive value between choice freedom and consent freedom. The free person is the person who has said yes to a pressing demand... ...which prior to the consent had seemed antithetical to the person's freedom. The free person is one who has renounced choice freedom... ...and in that renunciation discovered consent freedom. Now I wanted to read a few poems... But explore that a little bit. And I'll start with an Auden poem. This is one of the sonnets from In Time of War, sonnet number 15. And it begins by looking at someone who uh, is free in terms of choice freedom, a typical modern, if you will, modern Westerner but not free in the sense of having consented to to some implacable demand. Uh, He's free in a way that we modern Westerners think we are free. Engines bear them through the sky. They're free and isolated, like the very rich. Remotes, like savants. They can only see the breathing city as a target, which requires their skill. We'll never see how flying is the creation of ideas they hate, nor how their own machines are always trying to push through into life. They chose a fate. if we can make a distinction between fate and destiny, Destiny is to is to make a choice which seems antithetical to freedom and discover therein freedom. And fate is to opt for choice freedom and to discover that one is uh, not free after all. They chose a fate. the islands where they lived did not compel. Though Earth may teach our proper discipline, At any time, it will be possible to turn away from freedom and become bound like the heiress in her mother's womb and helpless as the poor have always been. Now, that's a complex poem, but to me it speaks of someone who has given himself to choice freedom and finds mid-course, or at least we, looking on, can see in mid-course that what has come of it is not destiny but fate, because no implacable demand has been made and consented to. The islands where they live did not compel. What's the difference between the uh, affluence that most or many at least, experience in the Western, modern, industrialized West. And what happens elsewhere in the world. The islands where we live do not compel. But it is still possible to turn away from that freedom and become bound like the heiress in her mother's womb and helpless as the poor have always been and discover a new kind of freedom. One doesn't want to quote one's own poem in too much proximity to an Auden poem, but I did think of this poem that I wrote a number of years ago entitled Two Windows. The world, a vast cut glass kaleidoscope, is a great rose window with an ocean view, waiting for the final drapes to drop like Elijah's fallen mantle or an unplugged microphone mid-sentence in the bishop's catechu Though the dog dish has a host's thin pane of ice, some fly to the Louvre or Lourdes for a piece, while beneath them peasant pilgrims work in place, for whom an occasional jet trail will suffice. choice freedom versus consent freedom. I'm particularly uh, fond of this poem. It's just entitled number 50 in the, in the collected works. <clears throat> Most of us are told in the Western world that first thing you do is determine what you want and then go for it. But that's what, that that's the way to be free. Decide what it is you want and go for it. And this is a poem about what happens uh, if one follows that injunction. Lady, weeping at the crossroads, would you meet your love in the twilight with his gray hounds and the hawk on his glove? Bribe the birds then on the branches, bribe them to be dumb, stare the hot sun out of heaven that the night might come. Starless are the nights of travel. Bleak the winter wind. Run with terror all before you and regret behind. Run until you hear the ocean's everlasting cry. Deep though it may be and bitter, you must drink it dry. Wear out patience in the lowest dungeons of the sea. Searching through the stranded shipwrecks for the golden key. Push on to the world's end. Pay the dread guard with a kiss. Cross the rotten bridge that totters over the abyss. There stands the deserted castle ready to explore. Enter, climb the marble staircase, open the locked door. Cross the silent empty ballroom, doubt and danger past. Blow the cobwebs from the mirror, see yourself at last. Put your hand behind the wainscot. You have done your part. Find the penknife there and plunge it into your false heart. But destiny is not a multiple choice test. It's a demand made and consented to. Auden has two references to that demand made on his life. And one of them is, both of them are light in a way. One of them is particularly light, but I I want to read it to you anyway. It comes from this earlier letter that I spoke of, the letter to Lord Byron. He puts it it this way. I shall recall a single incident, no more. I spoke of mining engineering as the career on which my mind was bent. But for some time my fancies had been veering Mirages of future kept appearing. Crazes had come and gone in short, sharp gales for motorbikes, photography, and whales. But indecision broke off with a clean-cut end one afternoon in March at half-past three when walking in a plowed field with a friend, kicking a little stone. He turned to me and said, Tell me, do you write poetry? I never had, and said so. But I knew that mer- that very moment what I wished to do. <coughs> Some little thing breaks in. More apropos, perhaps, of this, uh, the difference between choice freedom and consent freedom, is a poem, Auden poem entitled "Like a Vocation," written in 1939, during which he was going through these changes. The choice freedom offers this, that, or the other thing, and then uh, a wide array of options, this, that, or the other thing. And the consent is a voice which asks that we say yes or no. So Auden puts it this way. Politeness and freedom are never enough, not for a life. They lead up to a bed that only looks like marriage. Oh... Oh, there's a line. That's one of those lines, isn't it? Politeness and freedom are never enough, not for a life. They lead up to a bed that only looks like marriage. Even the disciplined and distant admiration for thousands who obviously want nothing becomes just a dowdy illness. These have their moderate success. They exist in a vanishing hour. But somewhere, always, nowhere particularly unusual, almost anywhere in the landscape of water and houses, his crying competing unsuccessfully with the cry of the traffic or the birds is always standing the one who needs you. That terrified, imaginative child who only knows you as what the uncles call a lie, but knows he has to be the future, and that only the meek inherit the earth, and is neither charming, successful, nor a crowd. Alone among the noise and policies of summer, his weeping climbs toward your life like a vocation. Two more poems. One a kind of chatty little thing, that Auden wrote to a friend on his birthday. The title of the poem is Many Happy Returns. So Auden writes to his obviously younger friend, You will any day now have this revelation. Why, we're all like people acting in a play and will suffer, Johnny, man's unique temptation precisely at the moment you utter this cliché. Remember if you can then, only the All Father can change the cast or give them easier lines to say. Deliberate interference with others for their own good is not allowed by the author of the play within the play. I'm not such an idiot as to claim, you see, the point of all that is we, we have the destiny. Each of us has lines that are obliged, roles that are, we're, we're asked something. I'm not such an idiot as to claim the power to peer into the vistas of your future. Still, I'm prepared to guess you have not found your life as easy as your sister's, and you never will. All the possibilities it had to reject are what give life and warmth to an actual character. The roots of wit and charm tap secret springs of sorrow. Then, since all self-knowledge tempts man into envy, may you, by acquiring proficiency in what Whitehead calls the art of negative prehension, love without desiring all that you are not. Well, in its little ways, subtle little ways, it's a poem which says, we have our lines, we have our roles, they are demanded of us. By accepting them, we can discover something called freedom. But we will be tempted to do otherwise. We will notice that our sister has an easier life, or we will be tempted to change the lines so that they will be lines spoken by someone who is more free than we Think the person given our lines might be, and so on. But if we if we're disciplined, we might discover that we can love without desiring all that we are not. Last week I quoted many of the sonnets in this in time of war s- uh, series, and in one of them, uh, Auden pilloried the traditional hero, and showed how he had uh, he had fallen into decline. And now he's going to picture for, in this sonnet I'm about to read a new kind of hero, Uh, a a, a Christian hero, if you will, a a different kind of hero. Before I read it, I want to uh, read this uh, thing again from Buber. Again, I've quoted this in the past. This is the activity of the one who has become a whole being, An activity that has been termed doing nothing. Nothing separate or partial stirs in the man anymore. Thus, he makes no intervention in the world. It is the whole man, enclosed and at rest in his wholeness, that is effective. He has become an effective whole. Well, this Auden poem is about the hero, it's entitled The Hero. But it's a curious hero. It's a hero that nobody can quite figure out, this new kind of hero. And it begins with, with people trying to figure out this new hero. He parried every question that they hurled. What did the emperor tell you? Not to push. That's his answer to it. What did the emperor tell you? Not to push. What is the greatest wonder of the world? The bare man, nothing, in the beggar's bush. Some muttered, He is cagey for effect. A hero owes a duty to his fame. He looks too like a grocer for respect. Soon they slipped back into his Christian name. The only difference that could be seen from those who'd never risked their lives at all, was his delight in details and routine. For he was always glad to mow the grass, pour liquids from large bottles into small, or look at clouds through bits of colored glass. I think that last line is a reference to the church. Stained windows of the church. But let me just read it to you again because it's such a treasure. Gosh, I love it. He parried every question that they hurled. What did the emperor tell you? Not to push. What is the greatest wonder of the world? The bare man, nothing, and the beggar's bush. Some muttered, he is cagey for effect. A hero owes a duty to his fame. He looks to like a grocer for respect. Soon they slip back into his Christian name. The only difference that could be seen from those who'd never risked their lives at all was his delight in details and routine. For he was always glad to mow the grass, pour liquids from large bottles into small, Or look at clouds through bits of colored glass. Entitled the Hero. This concludes Reflections on the Poetry of W. H. Auden, The War Sonnets, or Sonnets from China and Others. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum.org. All one word. dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.